we're still in uh, Acts. Uh, we're still in Acts chapter nine. Uh, Zach got us started off last week, and he really did a great job. Really appreciate him. And uh, as you heard me say in my prayer, they're not here tonight because Susan is uh, suffering from something. They're not sure if it's just a stomach thing or or what, but she's in a lot of pain, and <clears throat> uh, so we want to be in prayer for them. We're going to pick up uh, in verse ten uh, of Acts chapter nine. We'll make it down through verse thirty-one. Um, and there's just, once again, uh, obviously some very, very interesting things that we find here. So uh, starting in verse 10 uh, in Acts chapter 9, it says, And there was at Damascus a certain taught one or disciple by the name of Hananias or Ananias. Um, it's, you've got it here in the scriptures version. You see the little dot under that H? That's to tell you that that's supposed to be a harsh H sound, so a Hananiah. Uh, but in, it's got translated in English as Ananias, which is fine. And the master said to him in a vision, you need, hold on to that thought for a second, that God speaks to Ananias or Hananiah in a vision. Just hold on to that for a second because it's going to crop back up in a minute. <clears throat> uh, it speaks to him in a vision and he said, here I am, master. And the master or the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called straight and seek the house of Yehuda for one called Saul of Tarsus. Um, for look, he is praying and has seen in a vision a man named Hananiah coming in and laying hands on him so as to see again. And Hananiah has answered, uh, Master, I've heard from many about this man, how many evils he did to your set-apart ones or your disciples in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those calling on your name. But the master said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before nations, sovereigns, or kings, and the children of Israel. For I shall show him how much he has to suffer for my name. I'm going to pause here for just a second. <clears throat> Here's what uh, you need to remember. Saul has been commissioned by the priest to go to Damascus and imprison everybody that is calling on the name of Yeshua for salvation and they are followers of the way. Ananias, or Hananiah, um, knows this. He lives, we have a tendency to forget he's a resident of Damascus. So Saul was sent there to arrest him and his family and all of his loved ones that are calling on the name of Yeshua. God shows up to Ananias in a vision and he says to him, I need you to go to this house owned by Yehuda or Judah on a street called Straight. There's no coincidences in all of this, okay? He's going to a house basically belonging to a man basically by the name of Judah. Yeshua's from the tribe of Judah, okay? I mean, where we get the name Jew from, or the Jews 
from the tribe of Judah. It's become a synonym for the people of Israel. And he's on a street called straight. Why? Because God just straightened him out. I don't think that's a joke. I mean, it's funny, but God puts all this stuff together. Years before, centuries, eons before, he knows he's going to meet Paul on the road to Damascus and he's going to blind him and he's going to send him to a house owned by a guy named Judah, Yehuda, and he's going to make sure that this guy lives on a street called Straight. Okay? He, he tells Ananias, you need to go to him and you're going to lay hands on him. And this is all he says to him. This is the part that's kind of funny. <clears throat> he says, he's, see, he's praying. All, all he, the first, you have to break this down and slow down. All he tells Ananias is, you need to go and see this guy named Saul because he's praying. And he's seen a vision from me that a guy named Ananias is going to show up and lay hands on him so he can see. He doesn't tell him that he's gotten, quote unquote, saved. Right? He just says, I've given him a vision that you're going to show up and give him a sight back. Can you just imagine Ananias going, uh, 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 um, Lord? Uh, and that's what he does. He goes, wait a minute. I've heard from a lot of people about all the evil he's done to your disciples in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And now he's here with papers, giving him the authority from the chief priests, which basically in Jewish law rule the country even though they're under Rome. So they're like, okay, so he's been given, he's commissioned by the leaders to come arrest us, throw us in prison, and maybe kill us. And you want me to go? Is that an honest question? Yeah, it's an honest question. I want you to see what God tells him. I want you to understand something. This is not uh, a harsh thing that he's saying. He says, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine. Wow. God already knows all the evil that he's already been doing. And he says, this man is a chosen vessel of mine. For starters, let me say this. Never think that there's anybody you know or or have heard of that is so bad that God cannot use them as his chosen vessel. I mean, after all, if he can save me, he can save you or anybody else and do something with any of us. Amen? Amen? Amen. There you go. Y'all know that's that's on the internet now. Uh, I mean, if he can save any of us, he can save anybody, and he can use anybody. Um, And then he says something here. He says, he's a chosen vessel of mine to do what? This is critical in understanding the gospel message that we're going to get into tonight. He's going to bear his name. This is huge, folks. He's saying, he's my chosen vessel to bear my name. Then he says he's going to have a threefold ministry or a ministry that's going to reach three people groups or three sections of the world. Number one, he's going to bear my name before the nations or 
Gentiles, those outside of the family of God, basically. He's going to bear my name before them. Folks, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Do you all understand that? This isn't just unique to the Apostle Paul. We have distorted, I hate to say this, but we've distorted our perspective on the gospel and the message we're supposed to be proclaiming. He said, he's going to bear my name before the nations. He's also going to bear my name to the kings or sovereigns or rulers of the world. And he's going to bear my name before even my own people, Israel. Wow. So he's explaining to Ananias. Here's the flip side of this. If God ever asks you to do something and you're worried, that's not a lack of faith. It actually might be a discerning mind, knowing that there are dangers. Doesn't mean that you don't, well, this is dangerous. Well, yeah, but God, right? Uh, So Ananias has an actual concern that is real. It's not made up. Some of ours are made up, amen? You ever have those conversations in the mirror? I'm not the only one. Some of y'all are going, oh gosh, he called me out. Uh, Right? You have the conversation in the mirror, you know, that never happens. You know, you're worried about things in your own mind that aren't, and it just never even came about, right? I mean, not even remotely. Uh, Ananias has a real concern over a real issue that there's a real guy there named Saul that really came to arrest them, throw them in prison and kill them. And God is really talking to him, telling him to go give him his sight back. (laughs) So Ananias goes, I don't know that I really want to do this. And then God actually compassionately explains to him the story. You see, God doesn't always ask us to follow him in simple, blind obedience. Has he ever done that? Yeah, he asked Abraham to do it more than once. Just get up and leave the land of your fathers. Go to a place I'm going to show you. Just start walking, dude. He starts walking, you know. Keeps telling him he's going to have children. Ends up with Isaac. He goes, now I need you to go kill Isaac. What? He's the promised child. Oh, my goodness. And and so there were some things that he did tell him to do that he really didn't explain. Sometimes he may ask us to do that. But I think there's a lot of times that when he's asking us to do things, if we would just ask, aren't we told that in the book of James? You have not because you ask not or you ask with the wrong motives so that you can, whatever answer you're going to get, you can just spend it on your own pleasures. How often is that happening in modern day Christianity? Uh, And he says, so that's why you're not receiving. Ask what? And he'll tell you, knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. Ask of your father and he will tell you. So we should be in prayer and we should ask and God will reveal and God will take care of us. And then he says this, and because he, he, he hasn't ended. He goes, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for being a good Christian. Is that what he said? I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for preaching the gospel. Remember what he said? He said, he's going to what? Bear my name 
to the nations, to the kings of the world, and even to my own people. And this is what he's going to do, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Wow. So we should catch on to the idea, the issue is over bearing the name of God and reflecting the image of God and the name of God in an evil world. Amen? And that's what he was calling Paul to do. That's what he called the apostles. That's what he's called us to do, folks. We're supposed to be pointing people to God and glorifying God instead of trying to help people get over their problems. I kind of made an end around punch to the end here, but that's where we've really flipped the script on this uh, with salvation. Will God do that? Yes, but that should never be the focal point. We've made the byproduct or the benefits the goal. That's not the goal. I've always said, look, if you, if you want to get along better with your family, be nice. You want your husband or your wife to love you better? Love them better. Cherish one another. That's got nothing to do necessarily with God working miracles in your life. It's got more to do with us screwing our heads on straight and just being kind people. You know, there are atheists that are happy. There are pagans that actually love their husbands and their wives and actually get along, right? So what he's telling Ananias, watch this, who was afraid he was going to suffer. That's why he said, I really... Don't know I really want to go do this, God. I mean, hey, he's going to come here and throw us in jail. And then God goes, well, he's the one that's going to suffer. Whoa. Hallelujah. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, right? So here's what I want us to see in this story. You've got one side of this story where Ananias is a, a resident of Damascus where Paul was going to arrest them, kill them, take them back to Jerusalem in chains. He's worried that he's going to suffer, but God has already showed up in Paul's life, Saul's life on the road, telling him, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And the light was so bright, it blinded him. And now he's in this house belonging to Yehuda on a street called Straight. And he's praying because he's seeking truth, and God has showed him in a vision, a guy named Ananias is going to show up and lay hands on him, and he's going to receive his sight. God is showing up to Ananias in a vision, saying, this is what I want you to do. And he has this conversation with him in a vision. You holding on to that? It's going to come back up in a second. Let's go on. Verse 17, so Ananias went away and went into the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Shaul, which is what it, how it would really be pronounced, the master Yeshua who appeared to you on the way as you came has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit or the set apart spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it were, scales. And he received his sight, and rising up, he was immersed or baptized. And having received food, he was strengthened. 
And Shaul was with the taught ones, or the disciples, at Damascus, watch this, some days. Underline that. Some days. Here's what you have to remember. Once again, the book of Acts is an historical account of how the early believers were fleshing out this new understanding of their faith. And people coming to Christ and churches being planted and people getting stoned. Paul's going to get stoned, beat up, shipwrecked. All kinds of weird stuff's going to happen to him. But what I want you to understand here as I go through this text, this is not in real concise chronological order. This is a summary statement because I'm going to show you something. These things happened over a period of years. Not his being immersed, but it says some days. In other words, he was there. And what he's saying is he was there for a while. He's trying to get on. He's giving a summary statement of what all was going on with Paul, and he's going to go on to a story with Peter that we're not going to look at tonight. So he was there for some days, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed the Messiah in the congregations that he is the son of Elohim, the son of God. And it says, all and all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those calling on this name in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem? And has come here for this to take them bound to the chief priests? They're like, and they're they're shocked. They're like, I, I don't understand. Uh, they're, they're trying to grasp what's going on. Then look what it says. But Shaul kept increasing in strength and was confounding the Yehudim who dwelt in Damascus. Watch this. Proving that this is the Messiah. So he was confounding them, proving that Yeshua was the Messiah. Verse 23, I'm just going to go ahead and read this one, and then we'll stop here for a second. Verse 23 says, And after many days had elapsed, the Yehudim there plotted to kill him. So, the first simple question is this. Paul is on a road to Damascus. Jesus shows up. <clears throat> he realizes it's Jesus. The light blinds him. He goes into Damascus, staying at Judah's house, street called Straight. Three days passes. Ananias shows up. He gets his sight back. He goes out. He starts preaching the gospel. He's amazing everybody. And he is confounding the Jews that are living out there, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. You need to understand that that didn't happen overnight. In other words, as soon as Paul got saved, God didn't download this info into his head like on the Matrix. You know, they're, got, they're plugged in and, you know, teach me how to fly a helicopter or something. That's not what was happening with Paul. Paul tells us what happened in a more detailed account. But before I get into that, let's just finish reading this one little section here, starting in verse 23, because it says, many days, because it says, and after many days had lapsed. So this is two different times. So there'd been a lot of time that had lapsed, 
And it's gotten to the point to where he keeps confounding these Jewish people that Jesus really is the Messiah. From the scriptures, he's proving this. And they plot to kill him. This is Paul who was going to kill, let me say, he was going to kill the Christians. Now the Jews that are there that he's been confounding are now plotting to kill him. So you have to, everybody's understanding of who he is and what he's doing has now totally flipped. You following that? That didn't happen overnight. We're going to see why this is true in what Paul told the Galatians. So we'll go to that in just a second. But their plot, verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul or Shaul, and they were watching the gates day and night to kill him. They were plotting to kill him. They're watching going in and out of the city that we're going to catch him, we're going to kill him. But taking him by night, the taught ones, the disciples, let him down through the wall, lowering him in a basket. How, isn't that great? Here's Paul that came into town. He's going to kill everybody that's Christians. Now the Christians, are, they break open a wall. It's not even through a window. They break through this wall and they put him in a basket and lower him out the city walls in a basket. He's got to sneak out of town in a basket. <laughs> Things are different, right? And then it says, and having arrived at Jerusalem in Jerusalem, Shaul tried to join the taught ones, the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They're like, what are you talking about? What in the world is going on? I mean, this is Paul. This is Shaul. What do you mean you're, a, a, you're now a believer? You were there when Stephen was stoned. You were there starting all this persecution in the whole city of Jerusalem. Verse 27, but Barna or Barnaba or Barnabas took him and brought him to the emissaries or apostles. And he told them how he had seen the master on the way, how he'd seen Jesus on the way, and that he had spoken to him and how he was speaking boldly at Damascus in the name of Yeshua. And he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Verse 29, and speaking boldly in the name of the Master Yeshua, and look at this now, and disputing with the Hellenists. But they undertook to kill him. <clears throat> this is weird, right? Because he goes to Damascus, which is up in the north, above Samaria up there, and there are Jews up there that he's... Con he, the... the the people that left Jerusalem and went up there, he's going after them to kill them. So this is the Hellenist area. But it's the Jews that are up there that he makes so mad that they try to kill him and he has to leave town in a basket. Now he's in Jerusalem and it's the Hellenists that are there that are mad enough that they want to kill him. Remember, it was the Hellenists that stirred everything up with Stephen, and Paul was there, or Shaul was there, when they were stoning Stephen, watching their coats, egging them on, right? So now it's that same group in Jerusalem that are now plotting to kill Paul. You go, okay, so how in the world 
Did all of this, trend, you have to go, what? Is it just me or have you ever read this story and kind of gone, hmm, I'm, I'm not really following how all this happened and how it happened that fast, right? Uh, how was it that Paul gets saved and a couple of days later he's proving to people that Jesus is the Messiah? Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't, watch this, unless you read Paul. Read what he said. Read what he talks about. Like uh, Zach started last week sharing Paul's account of his Damascus Road event and some other things. So to do that, we've got to look at some things. And it's really found in Galatians chapter 1. You're just going to have to write it down. I didn't give it to you in your notes. So that you'll have to write and think a little bit. And hopefully you'll go home and read this for yourself. How was it that Shaul, Paul, was able to make this transition so fast from killing believers to confounding everyone by his ability to prove that Yeshua was in fact the Messiah? Well, it didn't happen overnight, as I just said. In Galatians 1, starting with verse 15, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. It continues, but I stopped there for a reason just so that you could see something. He's explaining. Zach used part of this same passage last week explaining Paul's version of his Damascus Road account. I'm picking up on that and continuing just a little further. Paul is saying here, but when it pleased Elohim who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his favor. Do you see that? Paul understands that God called him out from before the time he was born. even though he was doing all this evil. It's hard for us to wrap our brain around that, right? Because we just think God can only use good people. Well, who's good? Sorry, but I'm not looking at any in this room. The only person that's really good, according to even Jesus, is God, God the Father, and Him. Um, he says he, He's called Him. He separated Him out from His mother's womb. Look at this. To reveal his son in me. To reveal Yeshua in me. That I might bring him, meaning that he might bring God, the good news to the Gentiles. You see, the good news is God. Heaven is only heaven because God, because Yeshua is there. Hell is only hell because it's the absence of God. God is the focal point, not you, not me. Paul really understood this. And then he, look, listen to what he says now about him learning about the gospel. This is what I want you to pick up on what I'm reading here, what Paul is trying to explain to them, and it's a defense of his gospel ministry. And in this process, he's questioning the Gentiles like, why do you want to go back to a legalistic lifestyle thinking you can become holy or thinking you can get kudos from God by what you're doing? We're saved by grace through faith, period. That's your salvation. Everything else is to be an outflow of our love for God. Does that make sense? So that's what he's trying to explain because they had slipped back into this quasi pagan, mixed, Jewish uh, 
legalistic lifestyle, thinking that, okay, if I do all these things, then God has to do blank. Or a God or whatever has to do blank. And they were slipping back into that. So he says that God separated him from his mother's womb, verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I might bring him the good news to the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Neither did I go up to Jerusalem. He's saying, I didn't seek out a human being to teach this to me, and I didn't go directly to Jerusalem. I thought we just read that he went to Jerusalem. Right? Well, he did, but not immediately. That's what I want you to see. But I went to Arabia, that we today call Saudi Arabia. That's where he went. Hmm. And returned again to Damascus. So he says, listen, I went to Saudi Arabia, but then I came back to Damascus. Damascus is north of Israel, Saudi Arabia is south. It's not a four-day journey by foot. Okay? So it took some time. And you should already know this, but what's in Saudi Arabia? Mount Sinai. It's not in Turkey. It's in, it's in Arabia. And everyone knew it back then. And they have found it. There's, you can find it on Google Earth if you want. The real Mount Sinai. You can see Moses' altar. You can see the split rock that the water came out of. You can see all of that from Google Earth on your computer at home. You can see the top of Mount Sinai that is burnt. The whole top of the whole mountain area there, the top part is just burnt. It's black. You can see the split rock, and you can tell that the erosion that came out of there was water in the middle of the desert. The list goes on and on. That's in Saudi Arabia, and they have been protecting it all this time, and the Saudis, all everybody there in Arabia, they literally call it Moses' Mountain. That's what they've always called it. Okay? That's where he went. Why would he go there? Because that's where God first met his people on Mount Sinai and gave his law. And they knew this. Um, So he says he went into Arabia, and then he came back to Damascus. Hmm. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to learn from Peter. Three years years passed before he goes to even see Peter or anybody else in Jerusalem. And it says, and he remained with him for 15 days. And he said, I saw no other of the, of the apostles except for James, the bro, or in the Hebrew, uh, the scriptures version, it says Yaakov, because there's no J sound in Hebrew, uh, Yaakov uh, or James, the brother of Jesus. And what I write to you, see, before God, I am not lying. Hmm. Then <clears throat> I went to the districts of Syria and Cilicia, or Kilika is how it's said in Hebrew. Uh, <clears throat> and I was still not known by sight to the assemblies of Yehuda, which are in the Messiah. Meaning they still, at that time, after three years, really didn't know him by sight. They'd only been hearing about him. 
But they were hearing only that the one who once persecuted us now brings good news, the belief which he once ravaged. So they were esteeming God in me. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So what he's saying is, look, I went into Arabia. We're having to assume that he went to Mount Sinai. Where else would he go? They knew it was there. You can see it now. So we are speculating because he doesn't tell us he went to Mount Sinai. But why else would he go there? Because he says, look, I didn't learn this from a human being. I learned it from God. Paul saw Shaul in his zeal to serve Yehovah was trying to kill this sect that he thought was an abomination before God that were following that he thought this false teacher, Yeshua. He finds out what? Yeshua really is God. Uh-oh. Yeshua says, you're going to go into Damascus. You're going to stay at Judah's house <laughs> on a street called Straight. I'm going to send Ananias. He's going to give you your sight back. He gets his sight back. What do you think Paul wants to do? Saul, he's like, I don't know about y'all. I'm going straight to hear from God himself. I'm going on a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, and I'm not leaving until I find out what in the world is going on. Paul tells us in other places that he learned this gospel message from Yeshua himself, taught by God himself. He said, I didn't receive this from people. This was given to me by a vision by God himself. Paul, I wrote this, this, this note down. Paul, after his conversion, left Damascus and went into Arabia. This is where Mount Sinai is, where Yahweh first met with Israel after coming out of Egypt, and he gave them the Torah. Paul tells us that the gospel he preached did not come from but men, come from men, but direct, but a direct revelation from Yeshua. Paul, watch this. Paul did not preach a personal deliverance gospel. You technically don't even find that in the gospel accounts or in the letters. But the proclamation that Yeshua is, in fact, the Messiah promised by God and prophesied about in the Scriptures. That's what they were preaching. They weren't preaching, come to Jesus and He'll get you out of your mess. You did hear over and over, come to Him because He'll deliver you from your sin, but we also know what sin is, rebellion against God, right? Now look, we all know that Jesus will deliver you from your sins and get you into heaven. We know that. That, that is the truth. That is true. But once again, this truth was never supposed to be the focal point in our preaching and teaching and proclamation. The focal point has always been Yeshua coming back or coming to the world to bring back under the rule of God the whole world. And that he would do that by delivering us from our sin, which is what? Rebellion against God and his instructions, which we're told in 1 John. In the scriptures over and over again, this is referred to as what? Reconciliation. 
Paul even says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and we are reconciling, we are begging you to be reconciled to God. It's also called the restoration of all things. Folks, this is the message that is so powerful. It's the understanding that Yeshua, Jesus, or however you want to say his name, is none other than God in the flesh. When God said, I'm going to send you another prophet like unto Moses, and I'm going to have my name in him, I'm going to put my words in him, you are to listen to every single word he says, and if you don't, I personally will hold you accountable for it. That's why the scriptures in the New Testament talks about there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is Yeshua and Yeshua alone, period. And it's a proclamation that he is the Messiah, God in the flesh. He's not a prophet. He is the prophet. He is not a savior. He's the only savior. Folks, this is the message that is transforming thousands of lives in the Muslim world to this very day. Did you know that? And it's happening how? By visions and dreams. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, I just saw another report where they're they're estimating now millions of people in Iran alone are turning to Yeshua as the Savior. The fastest growing in the church today is in Iran, and it's ran by women wearing their burqas willing to offer up their physical bodies as a sacrifice to God if they get caught for what they're doing. And you know why that's happening? Because they're seeing visions of Yeshua standing right in front of them, saying, I am God, you need to turn to me. And they're turning to God, they're turning to Jesus by the thousands. Why? They're not going to a church hearing, if you come to Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins and he'll fix your life. You know what's happening to them? Their worldview is being challenged and flipped upside down and they're becoming confronted with a living, holy God that is telling them, you have thought I was basically... A false prophet. Did you know that Muslims believe in Jesus that aren't saved? They believe in Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that they actually believe that he's coming back? They believe that he lived and died 2,000 years ago. They also believe that he is going to physically return to this earth. They also believe that he, when he does come, he's going to tell all the world that the Christians and Jews were wrong and that Allah is right and that they need to serve the Mahdi, which is what we know as will be the Antichrist. So they have no problem talking about Jesus. It's just a different one than you and I know. So when this Jesus shows up, just like Paul, and he, he goes, you know all that Allah stuff? I'm the one true God talked about in the Bible and the only way to me is through confessing that I am the very son of God. Not a prophet, but God in the flesh. And they're turning to him 
because their, their worldview has been turned upside down. And they're like, you mean God is real? That's right. What we've been preaching in America for a long time is if you've got problems, you come to Jesus and he'll fix it. That is true. It's just not the truth. Because watch this. If that's your focal point, what happens when you come and you try a church and it actually works and you got your life straightened out? When then what you end up doing is you need to, you're just trying to get everybody to go to church. You ever notice that like even when we're witnessing, you, you, one of the first questions we ask, are you a Christian? By the way, which is a dumb question. You never ask anybody that. But we'll have a tendency to ask, you know, are, are you a Christian? But you know what the most prominent question we'll typically ask? Do you go to church anywhere? Right? Because in our minds, we are saying, this is what we actually believe. I hate to tell you this, but this is what we actually believe. That if you go to church, you're okay. Or if you're, you're a Christian, you're okay. I mean, you know, yeah, maybe your life's messed up, but you're saved, you'll get in, it'll be, you know, it's all okay. Because we've been trained to think it, we're just like sheep. There's a reason why God calls us sheep. I'm sorry I bring this up all the time. Uh, you know, we, we raise sheep. I've got five that are going to the butcher soon. I've got three that are going in two weeks. And these five boys, these rams, I go out there with, I don't even have to go out there with anything in my hand. They just come running. And what's so funny, because I feed them in the trailer that I'm going to haul them to the butcher in. I know. I go out there. They run in there when the trough's not even in there. They run in the trailer when I'm pouring it in the trough outside the trailer because I first started teaching them to eat in the trailer. And so I still do that because I've done it the other way enough. I'm like, there's an easier way to do this. You just feed them in the trailer. They'll go run in there. You just shut the door. You know? They're treated nice. I mean, and, and, and even this place I'm taking to them treats them extremely humanely. You know, but I, I walked out today after feeding them. I was like, wow, they just, you know, but all they're thinking is, you know, where's the food? Where's the food? I know that the food used to be in there. It's funny watching them run in there and run back out and they just follow each other. And there's not even a trough in there sometimes. We're just like that because we've gone in and in and in and in. And and the only thing we think about is what, you know, do you go to church? We make that the focal point. We make that the goal. We make the goal, go down the aisle and get your life fixed. We make that the goal. The number one model, if you will, or barometer for success in the church today in America is numbers. So I guess I'm a big failure. I've run off more lately than we've brought in. I'm, you know, it, but that should never be the goal. The goal is supposed to be bringing glory and honor to Jesus as the one true God. That should be the goal. And folks, when you are faced with a living God, you have, one, you, have, you have two choices. Either you deny what you now know as true and pretend something else is true and you keep going that direction, or you succumb to the fact that you're face-to-face with the living God, the one true God, God. I mean... The apostle John, who leaned against the breast of Jesus in the Last Supper on the island of Patmos when he saw the vision of Jesus in front of him, fell on his face like a dead man. 
We got this idea, we're going to see Jesus and just run up to him like a puppy wanting to jump in his lap. When you see Jesus, us believers, when we see him in all of his glory, we're going to be just like the apostle John. We're just going to go, oh my gosh, I am undone. How did I, oh, whoa, I should already be consumed. I can't even believe I'm still here. Because he's God. Coming face to face with the transcendent God that is above all gods changes your perspective on everything. Then everything does finally work out. In other words, you start going, whoa, okay, wow, I'm, I'm yours, wow, okay. But if you come and if it's just about being involved in a church, well, what happens when that goes south? How many people can we all say in this room that we know people that used to be devoutly devoted to church attendance that now no longer go, and they're nice people? They're good people, right? But they tried that, did that, didn't work. Or they got burned so many times they said, I'm done. Right? Because we tried church. We're not supposed to be trying church or religion. We're supposed to be in love with the king. There's a big universal difference in being in love with the king and glorifying the king than doing church. We were never supposed to do church. We were supposed to bear his name, glorify his name. I'm only halfway through my notes, I think. Um, folks, this is the message that's so powerful, and that's, that's why this is happening in places in the Muslim world today. They're seeing visions. It's happening. These are real. Not happening a lot over here. You have to let that one kind of marinate a little. Um, over there, they're not seeing a God who will deliver them from their sins, but they are understanding Him to be the one true God sent by the Father. It's the transformation of their fundamental belief system. Folks, that's exactly what happened to Paul. It's exactly what happened to him. He was confronted with this transcendent God. Once we encounter him and confess that he really is God, everything else falls into place, including our personal problems. This is why John, the apostle I just talked about, tells us some things in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, you might want to jot this down. This is why he tells us that we need to test every spirit because I want you to see the focal point of the gospel is, is Jesus the very Son of God or not? That's the focal point of the gospel message. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Folks, that means even in the church and probably most prominently in the church. 
People that are teaching that Yeshua, Jesus, is not God in the flesh, that's a lie from the Antichrist. This is what Paul, uh, John is telling us right here. How many of us have heard that? Right? It's out there. He says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. This is the apostle John saying before he died, before 100 AD, that the spirit of the Antichrist was already active doing what? Spreading anti-Semitism, replacement theology, and that Jesus really isn't the son of God. Why? Because the Jew cannot matter and God could not have actually become man. Those are fundamental issues connected to the gospel message of God restoring all things under his rule. And he said, this spirit is already in the world. Wow. Verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, those that are teaching this stuff. For he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. How many of us have heard that and quoted that? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, right? Here it is. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Look at this. Whoever knows God, listen to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth, watch this, and the spirit of error. He goes on in the same chapter, because this is so important, in verses 15 through 17. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Folks, this doesn't mean I'm confessing that I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again. The devil believes that. I was saved off the verse in James, James 2.19. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. See, they know that's a truth. When it's saying here confess, it's confessing allegiance and confessing that God became flesh in the form of Yeshua of Nazareth. Died on the cross, rose again three days later, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is physically coming back to get us. He is none other than God in the flesh. This is what he's trying to get us to see here. And he says, those that confess that, those are the ones that are truly in God and God is in them. So we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also Uh, so also are we in the world. As he is, so also are we, even in this world. Folks, that means we're not waiting until heaven to live in the abundant life, walking with our God that he told us about. This is what's so messed up in our Christian theology. of You just need to come to Christ, get saved, get your life fixed, become a good church member, do the best you can, and then we're going to get to heaven. All through the gospel accounts, you see this other truth being taught that God wants us to live victoriously for him now in this world and so that we can be like him even now and walk in that power and authority, doing what? Bringing glory and honor to his name, proclaiming who he is, not church attendance, not salvation to get over your addiction. 
Will he do that? Yes. But you know what? So will positive thinking. There's all kinds of self-help books out there and other people that try to help you get past your addictions, whatever that is. Whether it's a sex addiction, pornography, money, power, whether you're just addicted to lying, you don't even know what the truth is, the list can go on and on, right? I mean, anybody here have a problem? Maybe some of us have a problem with admitting we have a problem, right? That's one of our problems. Uh, God can deliver you of that, but that's not the focal point. You get delivered of it when you come to him and he transforms your life. Um, This topic is so foundational that he continues on it in the next chapter, in chapter 5. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who's been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Uh Uh-oh. Right? But we've been told that you don't have to obey any commandments. But here we're told this is how love is perfected and how we know that we actually love the people of God and that we love the way God loves is that when we love God, love his people and follow his commandments. In other words, just simply do what he said. Does that make sense? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. (laughs) He's like, let me repeat it. And his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Here he's talking about when we confess Jesus, we've overcome the world. And it's pretty simple to do what God said when you're standing there and he goes, guess what? I'm God. And you're scared that you're going to be consumed for looking at him. Pretty easy to say, I'm I'm going to do what God said, right? Um. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Here it is where it's all tied together. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the very Son of God? It's like how many times do they have to keep repeating this, that the main focal point is clarifying that God came in the flesh just like he said he would, and then he died on the cross, removing the curse of the divorce decree, healing everything so that we could be rejoined with him to do something, declare who he is. Folks, the gospel message is that Jesus came in the flesh, that God, let me say it this way, that God became flesh in the form that we know as Jesus or Yeshua. That he was fully God and he was fully man. This is why John says everyone that's denying that, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Why? Because it's the focal message of the gospel message. In America, we've turned it into a consumer's commodity Everything is built around, let's build something that will meet everybody's needs so that everybody will want to come. I've been told many times that I'm a better teacher or even prophet than preacher. Maybe true. I've spoken at a lot of conferences and stuff, and over and over and over again, I've, heard, I've had people come up to me and they say, you preach like that at your church? I'm like, yeah. And they said, you probably don't have very many people there, do you? And I'm like, and they said, because people don't want to hear the truth, do they? I said, well, uh, 
I was trying to take that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, people typically don't want to hear the truth. What we're supposed to do is to bear the name of our God as we go out there. I am not saying that we shouldn't want people to get saved. Are you hearing me on that? If you go out of here and say that that's what I said, I'm coming to your house. That is not what I'm saying. We want people to come to Christ. We want people to have their lives changed. But I don't want people to make an intellectual decision that I'm going to try church and I'm going to try Christianity and I'm going to pray real hard and then he's going to deliver me from my alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever it is that I've got. And he's going to solve all my problems and then everything's going to work out okay. No, I want people to come and come face to face with a transcendent God that will transform their lives because he showed up in their life. And then let him work out all this other stuff. Does that make sense? When that's your focal point, there's no turning back. When falling in love with God is your focal point and your goal, then there's no turning back. Can you get tired of dealing with Christians? Sorry. Uh, can you get tired of you know the rat race stuff and people's feelings and all that? I mean, Moses got tired, you know. Uh, in our Tuesday study up at the senior center, looking forward to it. We're going to go through the book of uh, Deuteronomy over and over and over again. And there he goes. This is what happened because of you. I had to do this because of you. I mean, <laughs> over and over again. I mean, Moses got tired, right? But that doesn't mean we give up on God and our faith and our desire to chase after him and fall in love with him and keep doing what he's calling us to do. Watch this. Paul thought he was following God, but when he came face to face with the risen Savior, he was still bound and determined to do what God wanted. But this time, instead of him becoming the high priest, he becomes the most suffering servant we find in the New Testament. He's going to get shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, and left for dead. And get up after being stoned and go back into the city preaching. He's going to get bitten by vipers and snakes, hated by his own people, hated by Rome, hated by those that used to follow him, hated by those he thought he was going to lead. I mean, every way he turned, there were people accusing him of stuff, people lying about him, chasing him, hounding him, his whole ministry. He's going to spend more time in jail than we can count. But throughout all of that, he's still going to be pointing people to Yeshua. What was it that he learned at Mount Sinai? He learned that Jesus really is God, and he was able to prove from the Scriptures, as he says over and over again, he was confounding them, proving from the Scriptures what? That Yeshua is the Messiah. You know what's amazing? Most of us Christians can't do that. We can't prove from the Scriptures that Jesus really is the Messiah. Why? 
Because all we've bought into and eaten all these years is a simple salvation gospel message. Come to Jesus, let him fix your life. Become a good church member. Let's have a bunch of good programs. Let's get a bunch of people in here. Let's have a big party. And, you know, let's just keep doing Everybody be nice and just keep everybody happy. Yet over and over and over again, we're going to see in here where they were constantly, all of them were constantly proving from the scriptures that Yeshua was the Messiah. When Jesus met the disciples on the road to Emmaus, road to Emmaus, what was he doing? He was proving to them through all of the all of the scriptures from the Torah, the Psalms, and the prophets that all of this needed to happen to the Messiah, proving to them that this this happened to happen to this Jesus. And then when he broke bread. They realized it was him and they said, did not our hearts burn when he was sharing that with us? Folks, this is why when we march, we just got through marching through the book of John, right? This is why when we spent all that time going through there, I tried to make sure we saw all the miracles and all the things Jesus was doing, pointing out how this is a messianic miracle. This is a miracle that only God could do. You can't make this happen through therapy, through incantations, all this kind of stuff. A man born blind, a man born lame, especially a man born mute and blind. He can't see. He can't talk. You can't talk these demons out by finding out who they are. Only God can do these things, proving over and over again through his life and where he was, what he was teaching, where he was teaching, that he was none other than the prophet, the God in the flesh, and that they hated him because he was declaring that he and the Father were one. Because I want us to see these things and learn them. Because that's the focal point. If you're going to try a church, it's like it's a smorgasbord out there, isn't it? You don't like this one, there's another one down the street. There's the dozen of them down the street. Many blessings on all of you because you drove by plenty to get here. Um, I want people to come face to face with the living God. And then everything else will work out. Everything else will be exactly what it's supposed to be, the way it's supposed to be, because he will show you. When God shows up in your life, there is no, there's no turning back. When you know that it's God, not religion, not a preacher, not a denomination, not a church activity, God, none other than God the Father and his son Yeshua then everything else changes. And watch this. No matter what he's asking you to do, it's okay to ask questions. He will show you, and then he will lead you to do what he's telling you to do, even if it's going to talk to some guy named Shaul that came to kill you. You'll find, if you go back there, you'll see that when Ananias goes to Paul, Shaul, how does he address him? Brother. God in his vision convinced Ananias, I've already met with him. I met him on the road. We pick up on that because Ananias, that's what Ananias tells him. This same Jesus that met you on the road, he came and talked to me. He said, I'm supposed to come. 
I'm going to lay hands on you, pray for you. He received his sight. God might ask you to go talk to a Shaul. They came to kill you. It'll be okay. He's never going to ask you to do something you can't do or that he doesn't want you to do, and he's not going to empower you to do it. Amen? That's good news, isn't it? 